The Gospel of Mark, which we just heard, was not a text that was written to help you sleep better at night. The good news in this text, that's all the word that gospel means, remember, it just means good news, glad tidings. The good news of this book is that the world is changing, the world is in chaos, the end times have come, everything is poised on the brink of utter destruction and disaster. Does that not fill you with joy and peace and hope? Mark is kind of like Betty Davis in All About Eve, raising her cocktail and saying, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. I never pass up an opportunity to do a Betty Davis impression. It's like the privilege I claim by uh, inhabiting this pulpit. All jokes aside, the world that Mark describes is a pretty bumpy night. Scholars think that this text, which we've been hearing every Sunday morning in church for the last year, scholars think it was composed right around the year 70, maybe just before or maybe just after the horrific siege of Jerusalem. Roman armies destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they burned the temple to the ground. According to legend, they salted the earth itself so that nothing could ever return. It was utter destruction, complete, complete demolition of everything these people knew. Their world was thrown into total chaos. And we think a small band of them, they were probably Jewish followers of Jesus who had been worshiping at the temple. This small remnant of survivors escaped into the caves in the Judean country, in the Judean desert. And some of them began to collect stories. That was the, the oral history, if you like, of their parents' generation, stories about their great rabbi, this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who had taught and preached and, and died about 40 years before all of this was written down. So Mark preserves we think some of the earliest stories we have about Jesus, the earliest words attributed to him, and many of those words are terrifying words, like we heard this morning. We call this the little apocalypse in Mark. These are words where Jesus seems to predict the very events that these exiles have just experienced, right? Nation rising against nation, earthquakes, famines, disaster of every kind. These cataclysmic disasters, he says, are only the beginning. And you can almost see this, this faithful remnant ca camped there in their, by their campfires in the desert, mourning the, the loss of their city, the deaths of their loved ones, their world utterly changed. This is just the beginning, they said. And they said it with hope. This was the promise to which they were clinging. It's only going to get worse from here, they said, with relish and great joy. That's their gospel. That's the good news they have to proclaim to the world. Everything is going to get way worse. This is just the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. See, there's something, there's something intoxicating, I think, about the apocalypse. Until we can identify with the, the passion of these zealous, I think probably traumatized survivors of war and destruction, I think until we, we get some sympathy for their situation, we fail to understand them and the texts that they left behind them. It's easy to write them off as a bunch of religious nuts, right, these first Christians. When we do that, we throw up this distance between their world and our world, and I think we miss the powerful messages that they are handing down to us, if we have ears to hear them. When things are going great for us, when the world feels normal, maybe we don't notice these, these apocalyptic features in these texts quite so much. But when our world starts to unravel around us, when everything feels like it's on the brink of disaster, maybe we can hear their promises with slightly different ears. 
I had a little experience of the apocalypse not long ago, my own kind of personal version of the end of the world. It was about a month ago, September 25th. It was a Saturday night. I was not preaching the next morning, so I had like the kinds of Saturday nights that maybe you have a normal person's Saturday night. There was music on my stereo, candles were lit at the dinner table, I'm making pesto for dinner, I have a glass of wine, I'm in for a relaxing evening at home. I think I'll clean up a little bit around the apartment. Water's boiling, I'm dusting the ceiling beams. I almost never go up there, but they were kind of cobwebby. And my Swifter just glanced by the emergency sprinkler head attached to the exposed water pipes that run the length of my apartment, just a bump. That was all it took for the apocalypse to come raining down onto me. The fire alarms went off, the entire condo building evacuated, the fire trucks come blazing down the street. 40 minutes later, and 12 firemen later, they shut off the water, and by this time, there were about five inches of rusty sprinkler water that had coated my entire floor. It was like standing there. Everything I owned, every inch of my apartment, the furniture, the floors, the whole mess rendered, I assumed, completely uninhabitable. Unbelievably, my dining room candles stayed lit through the entire thing, which makes you wonder about the efficacy of these emergency sprinklers, but we'll leave that aside. I stood there watching this, I mean, lovely crew of 12 very, you know, competent fire people trying to get the standing water, like starting to siphon it out of my apartment, and I thought, well, this is it. Everything I own is ruined. I am starting over from scratch. And I gotta tell you, that was the freest I have felt in years. There's something intoxicating about these, these glimpses we get of the apocalypse, these little tastes of unmitigated disaster. Earthquakes and floods and fires and famine, wars and rumors of wars, the Saturday night where you bump a sprinkler head and everything turns to mush. I mean, it's no picnic. I would have preferred the, the restful Saturday night before the deluge, but for the next several hours, as I started to figure out what could be salvaged and what was a ruin, there was this tantalizing sense of possibility. Nothing is fixed. Nothing lasts forever. One minute you're cooking dinner, you're singing along with La Boheme, the next minute you're running outside in your boxer shorts to flag down the fire truck. In a New York minute, as they say, everything can change. And there's something intoxicating about that. There's something intoxicating about the apocalypse, I think. This fantasy of everything ending and you start over from scratch. But in life, as in the Gospels, things are almost never that simple. It turns out that actually most of my stuff survived the flood, <laughs> waterlogged, damaged, but most of it salvageable. It turns out that insurance companies are way more interested in salvage and repair than they are in remove and replace. It turns out that I don't get a whole new apartment, I just get a bunch of weeks in a hotel while the floors get redone, and then all of my stuff goes right back where it used to be. Not really a new apartment so much as a slightly cleaner, slightly damper version of my old apartment. Not a clean start, just a heavily negotiated continuity of the life that I knew before it all happened which I assume is also what happened for these earliest followers of Jesus there, gathered in their camps in the Judean desert. Despite these predictions of war and rumors of war, besides these half-terrifying, half-triumphant visions of destruction and the returning of the Son of Man on the clouds with power and great glory, despite these, these powerful visions of transformation and the inbreaking of the new, what actually happened, I suspect, 
is that the world that they rebuilt on the other side of the apocalypse looked an awful lot like the world they knew before it all happened, which is to say they got most of their old furniture back, just a little bit waterlogged and in need of a good cleaning, and they started over, but not from scratch, not from the beginning, but from somewhere in the middle of everything. The fantasy of apocalypse is that everything ends and you start over, and what mostly happens is that actually you find yourself smack dab where you started right there in the middle of everything. And that can be a pretty tedious place to be. I think that's some of what we're beginning to see as we return to some of our old patterns and activities after almost two years of lockdown and quarantine and social distance. I thought that everything would be different. And, and many things are, right? We figured out how to, how to sing hymns with a mask on. We figured out for life to go on in all these, all these new ways on the other side of what felt to many of us like the end of the world. And now we're coming back into the world again. And some stuff does feel different. And a lot of it feels kind of the same. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit relieved. And I'm also a little bit disappointed. I kind of thought there would be more change than there is. I'm sort of relieved that so many things feel as familiar as they do. But it turns out that the transformed world looks an awful lot like the beforehand world. Just a little more waterlogged and kind of in need of a good cleaning. And weirdly, that's exactly what Jesus predicted so many years ago, when he says, when you hear these, these rumors, this fear-mongering, this misinformation, when everybody around you is losing their head like Chicken Little running around because the sky seems to be falling, he says, don't let it sidetrack you. What he says is actually beware. Be on your guard. Because a lot of people are going to try to manipulate you in these times of heightened social anxiety and polarization. And that really does sound to me like the world we're living in right now. A time when there are forces making an awful lot of money by stoking the discontent and disinformation that's out there. One way that we could read this last year, January 6th, and everything that led up to it, is Jesus' prophetic words coming home to roost. Many will come in my name, he says. I think that's really telling. It's going to be Christians, he says. I'm going to tell you, it's your fellow believers who will hijack my name and my teaching and use it to increase division, stoke fires of anger, ramp up fear and violence and mistrust, all under the, the banner of Jesus Christ. Many, he says, many will come in my name in those days, and they will lead many astray. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says, do not be alarmed. Everybody around you is going to be calling for some kind of change, some kind of violence, some kind of drastic break with what was. And some of that stuff will happen. He says, nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes. This is all the beginning. Keep your heads and don't lose your focus. Because all of this, everything that we're living through right now, none of this is actually the end. It just feels like the end sometimes. And Jesus says, when, when that's the way it feels, when it feels like everything's ending, look around you and realize this is just the beginning. Don't spend your time speculating on the timing, the, you know, the signs of the apocalypse. That's what the, what the, what the disciples want to know about, right? What are the signs? This is all going to happen. And Jesus is like, yeah, don't, don't worry about the signs, you guys. Don't bother trying to piece together pieces of the puzzle. Nobody knows how this is going to come out. Prognosticators, prophets, predictors of doom, all of them have a vested interest, he says, in keeping you frantic and in rousing you up and knocking you off your center. They will try to make a buck off of your fear. And that is not what it means to follow me. 
So when you hear of war and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Hold fast, he says, hold fast to what you know to be true. Writing a couple generations later, the, the writer of the letter to Hebrews that we just heard, in another time of great conflict, right, let's be honest, there's, it's always a, the apocalypse for somebody somewhere, and for this writer, maybe riffing on these words that he or she knows from the Gospel of Mark, the advice is largely the same. This writer says, this is what it means to be a person of faith living through what feels like the end of the world. It's one of the best summaries I know of what it means to follow Jesus. The writer says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For the one who has promised is faithful. And then, this writer says, then let us consider how to provoke one another, but not to violence, not to franticness, not to fear. Let us consider how to provoke one another. It's, a, it's an interesting word to use. Let us consider how to poke one another into love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, I wonder who they are, not neglecting to meet together, but rather encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the dawn approaching, not the night. What's coming is the dawn. That's their good news. I think it's ours as well. So consider this your provocation, my friends. Consider this your poke. The signs of ending are all around us, and there are people out there who are going to use the name of Jesus to try to whip you up into a frenzy of violence and fear. Don't be seduced. Don't give in. Instead, let us hold fast to what we know to be true, which is that God is faithful. Let those crying out the name of Jesus on the street corners and in the dark recesses of the internet, let them alone. They have received their reward. Meanwhile, the one who has promised is faithful. So let us be faithful too in his name because that name has power. Let's use it faithfully.